It's the Audition Helper Podcast with special guest, Jeremy Seamus. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Audition Helper Podcast. My name is Ken Kesar, and I'm the host. I'm glad to have you with us. Today, we are talking to Tony-nominated actor Jeremy Seamus. You might know him from the film version of August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that was produced by Denzel Washington and directed by the great George C. Wolfe. Jeremy played the part of the white record producer Irvin, and he was really incredible in that role. It was a big part for him. Uh, we talked about that, and um, it was great to see him in that, in that part and in that movie. He was also in Birdman. If you remember, Birdman begins with an actor being fired from the production, and then they bring in Edward Norton, and uh, Jeremy Seamus plays that character who gets fired early on in the movie. But I got to know Jeremy from his work on stage. He was nominated for the Tony Award for Clybourne Park, which was kind of the part two by Bruce Norris to Lorraine Hansberry's fabulous play A Raisin in the Sun. Um, and from there, I saw him do Dinner with Friends by Donald Margulies. I saw him do um, um, the Bruce Norris play The Qualms uh, at Playwrights Horizons. And he was hilarious in this small play that nobody saw in the village. I shouldn't say nobody, but it was a very small production by Club Thumb called Too Macho, which was with Celia Keenan-Bolger and Jeremy and a, a bunch of other really fabulous um, actors. So uh, I was lucky enough to go see that, directed by Lee Silverman, and, and it blew my mind that I was watching basically basement theater with these incredible, talented people in it. So it was a special production. So I'm a huge fan of Jeremy's. I'm sure you'll get a chance to see him back on the boards in New York before long and and in watch out for him in, uh, in television and movies and all of that good stuff. He's also on a show called The Undoing, which it's on HBO Max. So you can see him there. So I really enjoyed talking to Jeremy. He's a great guy and uh, you're gonna enjoy that conversation coming right up. We've just finished doing auditions for two shows at Bristol Riverside Theater, our upcoming production of A Comedy of Tenors and our upcoming coming production of A Few Good Men. Um, and what I can tell you is we saw some great actors auditioning and I wanted to share with you and just remind you of a couple of thoughts as I was watching their auditions. I'm kind of looking at the actors who were more successful than others and, and what, what was the difference. And I wanted to share that with all the actors listening to this podcast and just remind you 
of a few things that the actors that I found most compelling and most successful were the ones that really engaged in the action of the play, pursuing their objectives, and really doing the work that is inside the play. There was a kind of actor that kind of came into the room and tried to get my attention with extra charm, with extra smiles, kind of exuding this love me kind of sort of sense. Um, and those were the actors that, that were not quite as successful. So I want to remind you, uh, when you're going into these auditions, don't try to stay away from that whole love me thing. Engross yourself in just the action of the play, the objection, the objective of the play and, and of the character and, and really focus on that and everything else will take care of itself. Try to take yourself out of it as much as possible. Forget that it's an audition for you. Remember that you are performing action of a character and commit to that totally. So I know you know that. I know you don't need me telling you, but for anybody listening, wondering why they're not getting callbacks or whatever, just a reminder, take a look at that and see if there's anything there to work with. Okay, and we are fighting the good fight at Bristol Riverside Theater with the whole COVID thing. We just opened our third show of the season, which is Lauren Gunderson's I and you, and I have to tell you, it is totally transcendent. It is beautiful, directed by Gia Forakis. If you are in the greater Philadelphia area or even in the New York area, do yourself a favor, make a trip to come out to Bristol Riverside Theater and see I and you. It's really special. It's got so much heart. It's got so much love. It's got great, talented actors. I'm just so proud of it. I tell you, I'm proud of everything we do at Bristol Riverside Theater, but this one really is a special one for me. I, I just watched it three consecutive nights this week, and I can't get enough of it. So I hope you'll all come check out our production of I and You running through February 13th. You can see more at brtstage.org. Okay, that's it for now. Uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Tony-nominated actor Jeremy Seamus. Enjoy. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? Good. You're not quite as late as you said you'd be. No, I I swung it. I love that picture of you. Was that was that you from Too Macho? No, I don't know what that was from, but I think it's a funny picture. So I wasn't sure if it was actually you or if it was a picture. I couldn't tell. So I was like, "Hello," and then you came on. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations on uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That is so amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. It was great to be part of. You were fabulous in it. How, how did you feel about it? I I don't love watching myself, but I love I love watching the movie. And I it was already tragic, and then when Chad died, it became five times more tragic. Um, but it's a beautiful movie. Absolutely, yeah, it's completely tragic. How did your uh, How did your involvement in that movie come come about? Uh, I was lucky enough just to be asked to do it. I just it came kind of out of just an offer. I only vaguely knew George Wolf just from around theater, just, you know, small world of theater. I don't even know if I've done a reading that he directed or anything, but I've just met him. He's seen shows that I've been in. I've seen shows that he's directed, obviously. And 
I know that they were just looking for a theater, a theater heavy cast, you know, to, to uh, honor the play as a play. I think if it was just a film, I don't know that would, it's a big part in a film for me to get just an offer for, but I think it's connection to the theater helped me. Yeah. I think that what I loved so much about your performance in that was that you, I mean, look, you're, you're one of two white people in the movie, you know, and you're, you're sort of the adversary to the, the band and Ma Rainey and all of that, but you somehow, you were able to bring forth a real humanity that suggested that this guy's not just a bad guy. He's, yeah. you know, he's trying to get a good product. He's trying to get a good, he's trying to show a reasonable amount of kindness and, and care about the people that he's sort of making money on or, you know, producing yeah. and, and that the situation is kind of impossible and while still recognizing the animosity and anger that Ma Rainey would bring to the situation and the band members sort of acknowledging that sort of injustice and being the power. So you kind of are the antagonist a little bit, but, but you brought yeah. humanity to it. You weren't just a bad guy. Yeah. I feel like actually that's the way August Wilson wrote it. I think that the other white guy is more sort of traditionally a bad guy, really manipulative and, all about the money. And I think he wrote my character is slightly more complicated and that I'm trying to get along with people. But at the end, I'm still part of the power structure that existed in the time. But I do think that he wrote a, a sympathetic character. I mean, I don't know if the other Sturdivant is so sympathetic just because he totally is manipulative um, and using and doesn't really care about people's feelings. And and I think my character is a little more complicated in that I am nice to everyone, but it's sort of also that how am I nice to them because I'm getting something from them. I mean, at one point, Ma Rainey does say, you know, he's been my manager for five years and the only time I've ever been to his house is to sing for some of his white friends. Not the nicest guy, but, you know, definitely trying or at least approaching from a place of knowing that it's better to get along with people than than not. And I think August Wilson recognized that there's that sort of gray area um, yeah, where people could get along, but there was still definite use and manipulation. So I don't, he doesn't let my character off easily at all. Did you ever meet August Wilson before he passed away? I never did. I never did. And what was your experience like working with George C. Wolfe? Incredible. Total. I know that people say genius a lot around a lot of things, but I love him as a theater director. And he has such a great sense of music and the movement and rhythm of things. I, I found that while I worked with him, I could tell that he saw the film, you know, uh, in his own head and was creating it, but at the same time being open to whatever came his way, which is, you know, what all great artists I feel have, you know, they have this integrity of what they want and see and imagine uh, at the same time being open to what gets added to it in the moment. And it came out in the movie, his sense of how the film moves and how music is a part of that world. And I just remember one at one point, I like I'm closing curtains. It was like time to get the recording going. And so my character was closing all the curtains and he had just a very specific idea of like, you know, it, he was like, it's like, <laughs> you know, I couldn't close them that fast, but he was telling me that that was how he wanted to edit it you know, how he wanted this moment to be. And he's just relaxed too, on top of everything. He's already proven himself. So it wasn't like working with someone who had to show that he's in control or anything. So 
Uh, so it's that kind of a film set where no one has to prove that they're anything special. Plus, you know, like Denzel Washington, who's the producer, was there all the time. So he he wasn't throwing his ego around. You know, I'm sure he's used to being on a set where he's like the actor or the director. And as the producer, he was just really quietly being there. every once in a while he would joke like, you know, like, what's it like, you know, being in a movie? Like, this is so interesting, you know. And he would um, so funny. Yeah, <laughs> it was really funny. He would yeah. come over to us in between and stuff and just be like, wow, you guys are actors. This is so neat. Like, <laughs> it was just a great experience overall. And and also it's like, it's particularly feels especially sweet because we were just all like hugging each other and around all the time. And now it was like the last time when people could be like that, you know. I've been watching you on stage for many years now, just like seeing you in all the various performances on Broadway and Playwrights Horizons and all of that. And I've always been wowed by you because you were, you know, what I really considered a working actor. You know, you were constantly working, you were doing good projects, you were doing good work. And I really admired you. And I, I think more than... I would admire like a big, like a Tom Cruise type, because when I was a kid, I told people that I wanted to be an actor. People would say to me, oh, what are you going to be, Tom Cruise? And I'd be like, no, there's got to be something in between Tom Cruise and a guy who makes a living acting. And and you sort of realized that for me, you you like, and I sort of, I looked, I look up to you for that, that, that you're in that sort of position. I said, I said the same thing to Reed Bernie when I interviewed him. I said, Reed, you're my hero. And I, and he looked at me like, I was crazy. Like he, you know, he thought I was just kind of putting him on or flattering him. But I honestly meant that. I meant that you, that you're my hero. Um, all of that really to set up the question for you of yeah. how do you feel towards your career? How do you internalize, you know, where you are in terms of working? And I'm wondering if Ma Rainey's Black Bottom changed the game for you at all in that way. Well, I mean, I think I've spoken with Reed about it, too, because he's I really admire him, too. You know, it's tricky because you have to keep reminding yourself what what you're doing when you're doing something that, you know, you would have, you know, given your arm to do it five years before or whatever. And definitely when I went off to college to study acting, you would have told me one or two of the things that I've done in the past many years, I would have, you know, freaked out and been thrilled. So I think <laughs> it's a matter of um, with my career as it is, I have to remind myself how thrilling and how lucky I am. And I think the real trap in probably any profession or life in general, and you don't want other people's success to hurt you and bother you. And you don't want to look up and see someone doing something that you wish you were doing and then reflects badly on in your own self-esteem about what you're doing. I've always had that to some extent, um, but it's easy at times to, you know, drift from that place and say, you know, why can't my career be more like this person or they get to do that and I'm only getting to do this. You know, that way lies insanity and, and unhappiness because everyone feels that way. Everyone feels like someone else is getting to do something that they wish they were doing. And even people at a certain level a great movie comes along and they don't get to be in that movie. They're in a different movie and that movie really is sort of a phenomenon and they didn't get to do that. And, you know, you can never win if you, if you start on that cycle. So, you know, I have to remind myself a lot that I'm just, I'm so happy to be a working actor 
to make a living acting. You know, the thing that I'm really grateful for in the past probably 10 years is that I've been able to choose things that, you know, work with people that I, whom I admire and on projects that really excite me since my daughter's 14 and my son's 12, like really since they've been born, I've been able to pretty much stay in town and stay available to be, you know, the best parent that I can be. So I've missed out on opportunities that would take me out of town, you know, films that would take me wherever for three months or four months. It's easy to not regret those things because those are three months that I would never have back with my kids. And now that I've realized how quickly time goes with your children, I'm pleased with the decisions that that I've made. In terms of Ma Rainey or anything, I mean, there's a temptation and I definitely fall into it where you get a job and think this is going to be a real, you know, this is going to change my sort of profile in the business or, you know, this will lead to things. And in my experience, I'm sure things that I've done have led to other things. And that's, it's never like a switch that goes on and all of a sudden you're in a different place. I mean, I'm sure it has been for some people. So what are the moments in your career that, that like made you say, oh, I can't believe I get to do this? What, what were some of the first projects that came along that you had? had that attitude about? Well, it was funny because I was doing experimental theater in New York after college and not getting paid. So, I mean, when I first got a job <laughs> where I got paid, it was like, I was like, this is fantastic. And I got to do a real off-Broadway show that had a playbill and everything. I was thrilled. And so it's kind of like that, like every step of the way. When I started working in theaters where I had seen plays that I loved, you know, like at Playwrights Horizons, and I'd seen so many plays that I loved and admired. And in some way, I never really thought I would work there. I mean, I hoped, but I didn't. I'm not like a dream board person who says like, I'm going to work here in the next five years. I just, I'm sort of a little more go with the flow, which probably isn't useful. It's not the secret. So when I ended up working at Playwrights, for example, then it's like, wow, here I am. That's amazing that, you know, I'm getting to play here. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, did you notice a difference in your audition ability when you first came out of school and then uh, later on when you were more seasoned? Did you notice like a difference in your attitude or your skill? I mean, this is terrible, but I worked harder on my auditions and I, I took them, you know, super duper seriously and they sort of felt like a be all end all. And I think sometimes I auditioned well because of that. I was ultra prepared and I took it once I started working and like a majority of the time or a good percentage of the time, I sort of knew at least several of the people who were involved. I kind of felt sometimes like, you know, auditioning becomes a little bit like, you know, I really want you to do this, but so-and-so doesn't know you. And would you come in? And it's easy for me, which is a bad habit to just sort of be like, okay, I'll kind of, I'll do it, but it's not like going to be like my be all end all performance. Right. I think in some ways, maybe, maybe my auditioning was, is better in that way because I was more sort of free to be instinctual and spontaneous and freer to do sort of adjustments and and definitely more relaxed in the room just because it's a much more friendly environment when you when you have confidence that you know people or that you know you have a decent chance at the thing sometimes i'm sure it's bit me in terms of you know not being as prepared and not really going for it and biting it off and 
and nailing it the way others might who are a little more hungry for it. So I'm sure there are times when I haven't gotten things because it's been a little bit like that wasn't an 100% effort kind of a thing. Having said that, I mean, I definitely, if it's something where I don't know the person and I really want it and I have to audition for it, then I'll revert back to my early days when I really went for it. So, And and what what did that mean in the early days? Like working hard, what does that look like? Just, you know, like, I mean, I like when I first got out of school, I used to go back to school and borrow a studio and like really and like memorize it and like really analyze it and work through it and get someone to run through it with me and get it on its feet and try different things and get suggestions from friends and just, you know, make it like a, almost like a rehearsal for a show that I'm doing, you know, the other way is more sort of like looking at it and learning it, but maybe not doing it out loud as much more like, I think I know this and I'll sort of see what happens on the day kind of and trusting that, you know, I'll do a decent job with it. And then if the director doesn't really love the take that I'm giving, they can give me an adjustment and I know it well enough and feel comfortable enough with it that I can just play with it. And I, I treat it more like a rehearsal than a performance in theater, theater directors and are more open to you sort of being like, this is how I might do it. What do you think? Cause it's a collaborative thing and TV and film. It's very much like they want to know that you could do it if you did it tomorrow or later that day. And on those auditions, you do want to come in and really just be like, this is how I'm performing this. And film directors and TV directors give adjustments to make sure that they can work with you. It, they're less likely, I think, if you make a completely a choice that they don't really see as the character to like trust that you can transform as much as a theater director could. That's the difference that I found in film and TV, which makes sense because they are about to shoot it and they're about to put however many millions of dollars into it. And so they want to know that you could do it tomorrow. So it makes sense to really have that polish for film and TV so that you could do it tomorrow. It does. Yeah. Like a film or a TV person who's putting together something is much less likely to think like, well, they're not really totally right for it, but they could transform and do this. It's like they don't have time for sort of transformation and it's harder for them to trust it because it's not really the nature of, of that game. And, and, and if you are going to transform, then you have to come in and show that you've transformed, not that you can transform as opposed to theater where it's sort of like, I think you could, I think you could do this. It might be a stretch or, you know, it might be playing against what you normally do, but I know that you can do it. We accept, we expect the transformation of sorts in the theater. Um, and I, I, I guess you're saying that film and TV, they, they don't as much or they don't trust that it'll be there. Do you think that has to do with a lack of imagination or is there something else going on? I think it's a little bit of a lack of imagination, but I also think it's like, you know, the camera picks up sometimes more of an essence of someone um uh -huh. so you can't play around as much with like a complete transformation as opposed to and in, in theater you you can make bigger transformations i think i wanted to ask you about clybourne park 
because uh, I I sort of perceive that as a real turning point for you. That was a, a Pulitzer Prize winning play and it got to Broadway. So I imagine that kind of catapulted you to a new level. Is that correct or no? Yeah, it did. It definitely, I had done a lot of off-Broadway shows that I loved and wished would move to Broadway. And of course, that's a lot of times for some shows, not every show, it's a fantasy that it would, that it would go to Broadway or that it would at least run longer off-Broadway and more people could see it if you're proud of it, happy with it. And I was, uh-huh. you know, very proud and happy about that play, you know, and I got a Tony nomination and it definitely, it definitely made Broadway plays more available to me just in terms of sort of having the experience and pedigree to make producers feel comfortable. While I was nearing the end of it, I got offered to be in Glen Gary, Glen Ross with the one with Pacino. And I'm sure like, it's not like I would have gotten that offer if Clyburn Park hadn't happened maybe the Tony nomination, but definitely the play. So it definitely moved me in that direction. Then I was cast in a Woody Allen movie, which now is more taboo than it was at the time. But, you know, like I got offered that and it was definitely because um, the casting director had seen Clyborne Park and I didn't audition for that. They just asked me to do that. And so that was related. So yes, I guess it definitely changed the work opportunity opportunities that I had for sure. So, and just cause you brought it up, h- how do you feel about having been in a Woody Allen movie? Is, is that? Well, at the time I was certainly happy having done it. And, and, and at the end of the day, I'm happy having done it because I, I worked with Colin Firth and Emma Stone and I was in the South of France and it was an amazing experience. People are less like, what was it like working with Woody Allen? If they do, they are more, it's more salacious. And, but I was, I was happy to have done it. It was certainly at the time it was sort of a New York actor's fantasy to get to do that. And, you know, at the time it was Colin Firth's fantasy as well. So it was like a, it felt like a really special time. And it was, it was. So let me ask you, how did um, you get to be involved with Clyborne Park? Was that something that you, you just auditioned for? And, and when that project came to you, what was your response to um, the script, did you think that it would it would go on to be as successful as it was? Yeah, I actually didn't audition for it. They um, they were already doing it at um, Playwrights. And I think they were thinking about doing a co-production with MCC. And so MCC hosted a reading just to hear it out loud. And Bruce and Pam asked me to do it. And, you know, when I got it, I was like, this play is incredible. I mean, no question. Well, you don't read plays like that often. Such a great show. I, I had the good, good fortune of seeing it at Playwrights before it went on to Broadway. And I, and we thought, wow, this is very cool. I, I was, I went into it a little skeptical because it was like, oh, you're, you're going to mess with a raisin in the sun, this great classic. Like, why would you ever do that? But yeah. it was really, uh, really phenomenal. Yeah. It's funny. I'm so, I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit, but when I first, when I read it, I didn't like put the, I didn't put it together. I didn't know Raisin in the Sun well enough to recognize my character's name, Carl Lindner's name. Uh So I read it really just as a play separate from, I mean, even when I did the first reading of it and someone mentioned something to me sort of like at the elevator afterwards, like something about Raisin in the Sun. And I was sort of like, oh yeah, but I didn't know what they were talking about. So, I mean, I had the good fortune, I think, of just reading it as a play and not having that connection. I don't know if I would have, if I would have watched the movie or something. I'm, I'm glad that I just approached it as a new character, as a separate play, because it certainly stands on its own as a, its own play. It doesn't, 
it doesn't rely heavily on that. I don't think, I think you can enjoy that play just as much, or maybe more if you don't put those things together. Then when you learn those things, it's like twice as clever, but you don't need to. Yeah. It's a bonus. It's like gravy. Yeah. And maybe your performance benefited from you not bringing preconceived notions of the character. You brought such openness and honesty to it. You just presented a human being and not like a villain, which maybe you would have thought of him as a villain if you knew you were coming off of a raisin in the sun. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like that's the quality of Bruce's writing is he's, I mean, I think Bruce is good at making people, you can go along with them up to a certain point. Then they start saying things that you're like, wait, I don't agree with that guy. Like I thought I was sort of like generally on the same page with him. And now all of a sudden he's saying things that you're like, shut up. Like this is insane. I mean, I think it's a tribute to his writing that it's not, not villainous. I saw you in Clyborne Park and that was fantastic. Uh, but then when I saw you in Dinner with Friends, that's when I really zeroed in on you. And that was the first time that I sort of said, okay, Jeremy Seamus, this guy I need to follow because he's phenomenal. So what was what was Dinner with Friends um, like? That was a roundabout production, wasn't it? It was a roundabout. I think, um, well, it was directed by Pam McKinnon, who had directed Clyborne Park. So, you know, we had a shorthand and liked working together. And I think what happened was originally she offered me the role, the other role. I think Danny Burstein was, was going to play Gabe, the role that I ended up playing. And then he wasn't able to do it. Uh-huh. I, I, I wasn't really keen on playing that other role. I just, I don't know. I just didn't think it was like a great role for me. And I just didn't, I wasn't really feeling it. I was talking with her about it, but I wasn't, it didn't grab me. And then Danny was unable to do it. I don't know why a schedule thing or he probably got something that was um, bigger and more exciting for him. And then she said, you know, would you do this other part? And I jumped on it because I I really think that's a really beautiful play. So yeah, it was kind of an ideal thing. It just came into being and was really fun to rehearse. And it's fun to do sort of a, just a purely naturalistic, well-made play. Yeah. It felt like a special production. It felt like everyone involved was invested and was enjoying themselves. And it looked like there was a lot of of pleasure on the stage. And um, I love the scene at the bar with you and the other male character. I just, I'll never forget that. It's like you're sitting there listening to his problems and you just brought like this openness to it. And it just, uh, there was something magical about it. I can't even put my finger on why. Yeah, I love that play. And I love, you know, everyone, the nice thing about that play is there's a bunch of sort of scenes that you can imagine what people probably do in acting classes, sort of ideal two-person scenes with, you know, real characters. And it was a fun play to rehearse in that way. And I love that theater. I love that, um, the Laura Pell's theater. What about it? Can you can you um, articulate? I don't know. There's something about going, everybody going underground to it. And you, you sort of feel like you're really escaping from the world and it's very intimate in a great way, Yeah, but not in a way like folding chairs, like someone's kind of close to you. It's like a real stage. That's interesting. Are there any spaces that are just too small that you feel like they're invasive that you would want to avoid? Well, I mean, I did tons of theater before I went to grad school that were like, that were small, but at the time it was exciting. But I mean, there were, there were a couple of theaters. There was one theater called Nada that was on the Lower East Side on the same block as cats is the ceiling was so low that you couldn't raise your arms all the way above your head on stage. But again, I have like fond memories. I did a couple of shows there that were incredible. At one point I was doing a show there at eight o'clock and then like it's 10 30 or maybe 11. I was in another show at a place called house of candles 
that was like a block and a half away from there. I mean, now I would like to raise my arms above my head, but <laughs> at the time I would have felt like completely like a fish out of water at the Laura Pels. The houses that I've worked in have sort of grown with my own confidence. That's beautiful, man. I love that the, the idea of confidence growing with your with your career and then sort of growing into the spaces that you will subsequently play in. I wanted to ask you about two more projects. I know you don't have a lot of time. Are you? I wanted to just ask you about the qualms and too much. By the time the qualms came, at that point, I knew who you were. I really was following your work. And I saw, you know, Bruce Norris directed, uh, uh, wrote it. So I know I knew I, I needed to see it. But the fact that you were in it really gave me the extra motivation to go and check it out. And also John Procaccino. Yeah. And just all these actors that I just freaking love. Just great, great actors. Talk to me about how how that was. I, it, what was your response to the subject matter and the material when you got it? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I love Bruce's <laughs> writing and I love, you know, I mean, in Clyburn Park, in the second act of Clyburn Park, and then in the qualms, I, I'm sort of um, somewhat of a stand in for Bruce in terms of I know Bruce well enough that I understand where my character is coming from, that it's kind of Bruce in the, the worst of Bruce um, expressing himself. So I love the idea of, you know, thinking like a swingers party would be so fun and and, and then how it's so people bringing casseroles and it's just very like unsexily realistic and it's it's just it's really fun to play and i also i also love just making the audience feel uncomfortable so i think the subject matter does that but also my character's response to the situation and the fact that i don't just leave doesn't let the audience off the hook and it makes everyone sort of squirm and be like you should just leave why are you saying that you know uh, i love that yeah, I do too. And I try not to read what a play is about before I see it. I pick my stuff based on the playwright and the actors and the artists involved if I'm interested in their work. That's smart. I love I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go with them anywhere. So I didn't know that we were at a swingers party and when you when it starts it just looks like any other kind of get together of friends and you're not sure what you're in for here people are bringing food right i love that. right and then it like sneaks up on you when john there's a scene early on when john Procaccino sort of puts his hand on the woman's knee you start to feel a little uncomfortable you're like what's he doing like is he creepy yeah and then you realize oh this is a swingers party that's the rule of the game we can all just have sex if we feel the urge to <laughs> Right. And then I think like, at a certain point, like someone says, like they're kind of reviewing the rules and something. And then you realize like it's like a really official thing. I mean, I, I agree with you. I love not knowing anything about something because the playwright obviously takes their time to introduce what the play is about. And so you can follow it and get involved in it. And if you have an expectation, then you're already, you know, starting from the, the when the lights come up of like, How's the swingers party going to play out? And it's just much more fun to um, discover along and discover in the way that if you were reading it for the first time and didn't know anything about it. I mean, I don't like to watch previews of movies and I definitely don't like to watch, you know, my wife and I always have a disagreement because if we're like binging a show at the end of the show, they are do a basic kind of like next week on such and such. Like, I don't want to watch it because we're going to watch it. And like, I don't need to see what's coming, even if it's vague. I'd rather just like be surprised. 
I'm right with you, man. I'm right with you. I, I hate watching trailers, but my wife will not go see a movie without seeing the trailer. She has to know exactly what she signed up for. Yeah. Yeah. I say, I want to see this movie. Watch the trailer. Tell me if you want to go or not. <laughs> right. Right. I don't want to see it. Yeah. No, it's fun to not know anything about something. I mean, my favorite thing is if someone says you're going to love this such and such a thing, but I don't know anything about it. It's fun. It starts and I just say like, I know I'm going to like this and I have no idea what's going to happen and try to figure it out as it goes. And and then I remember like at the end of the qualms, it sort of goes to a very dark place where the characters kind of talk about the sexual trauma that they've kind of suffered. Yeah. Like one person does. I mean, I think it's moving. I mean, I think Bruce, I think, does a great job of it's funny until it's not kind of um, right. And underneath Clyburn Park the whole time, there's the suicide of the guy. And so the end is sort of like the night that he commits suicide and he's writing that letter and he lets you go off into the night with like a deeper thing sort of ringing inside of you. So finally, um, I tell you, Jeremy, that what the moment that was really blew my mind was Too Macho down in the village, Club Thumbs production directed by Lee Silverman. That felt like a miracle of a production because here are all these great actors going into this small theater, mm -hmm. right? They couldn't have been commercially successful. I mean, it was just, there's not enough seats to make any money down there. Yeah. But here you guys all are in the summer having the time of your life with this silly little piece called Too Macho. So how did that miracle of a production happen? <laughs> well, uh, I think we all uh, love and admire Club Thumb and, and Ethan and Lee. And it was kind of one of those things where it was the summer and, you know, you, there's not a lot going on. And then it's kind of like a magnet, like with iron shavings, everything just sort of went toward it. And it was like, this would be really fun. I mean, it was sort of insane, you know, like backstage, we were all in one pretty small dressing room and people had to like stand on their chairs to change or different people had to be in the dressing room at different times just to have like, you know, so you could spread out your arms to put on your shirt or whatever. Yeah, it was an incredible group of people and it was just really fun to rehearse and it's a really funny play and it's like, I think Ethan's a great writer and it was fun to sing. And I don't know, it is, it was kind of a miracle though. It was sort of insane. Like the people that got to see it were just like, what just happened? That was crazy. Cause it was so, it was really good. And in some ways it was thrown together, but in another way we rehearsed hard to make it, it was a tight production. I think John and Celia, a couple of other people had done a bunch of readings of it and everybody, whenever, they did a reading of it people loved it and thought it was so fun and how fun would it be so john and celia and lee and ethan they were sort they were sort of the core group of people that were like fighting to get it done you know and the four of them it's like great people to work with so it sort of was like yeah let's do it it was a great show and i still go walk around my house going yes it takes practice to love a cactus and i'm like the only person who knows what that is and i was like wishing it became a a bigger thing like a broadway show so that, that it would become a cultural reference i find myself alone here amongst very few people who saw it <laughs> yeah you're you're alone but it's a good kind of alone yeah no it's a great it's a great yeah. piece. It's really funny. That thing is kind of, those kinds of things are hard to get to bigger and bigger theaters. It's so silly and inane <laughs> in a great way that it's like fun to go downtown and see it, but 
if you pay $200, you know, people feel like they want to. Inane is such a great word for it, but it's such a compliment to it. I think usually when you use that word, you're, you're really um, destroying something, but it's inane in a wonderful way. That's the fun of it, that it's so inane. Oh yeah. That was the fun of it. Everybody who, everybody who saw it loved it. I mean, people still talk about it and say, um, that's one of their favorite things that they saw because it was like you said it was just a sort of special thing in the summer you walk into this tiny theater and see this magical crazy thing with puppets and songs and you were lucky to see it yeah i was lucky I, I feel that way i tell you i love your work every time you pop up in a movie i really enjoy every time i see you so much fun to sort of pick you out of these movies when you pop up in movies and tv shows yeah it's fun i get to do fun things and i i am very lucky and thankful that i keep working so yeah yeah you got you got a lot going on in terms of television i know you're doing um is it the undoing well i did the undoing the undoing is was just an eight or was it six or eight part thing that's done oh, on that's hbo done. but okay. yeah i'm doing a thing right now i'm starting shooting tomorrow for um an amazon thing that shoots in new york so wonderful i'm excited about that Great, great. Well, lots of yeah. luck on that, and I can't wait to see it. And um, when you when you do find the time to get back on stage, I'll be uh, I'll be looking for you and cheering you on. You're you're a great performer, and keep doing what you're doing. I wish you a lot of luck and success, and uh, you know, and all the best, and just great great stuff in your career. I think you're at such a wonderful place of being a working actor that I imagine it's just a ton of fun. Yeah, I feel really lucky, and thank you for. Uh... Thank you for talking to me and including me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being willing to talk to me. I appreciate it. It's great talking with you, Jeremy. And you. All right. Take care. Okay. How about that? That was me and Tony award-nominated actor Jeremy Sheamus, and I had so much fun talking with him. If you want to see more, go check him out on The on the Undoing on HBO Max, and, uh, and I'm sure you'll love him. You can also see him in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the movie, and Birdman. So go check that out. So thanks, Jeremy. Great talking with you. Um, really lots of fun. Can't wait to see you on the boards again soon. And just a reminder... Lauren Gunderson's INU now running at Bristol Riverside Theater, an incredible production through February 13th. You can get your tickets at brtstage.org. Come out and check it out. I'm telling you, you won't regret it. It's a really special production. All right, that's it for this episode of the Audition Helper Podcast. Thanks again for joining me. I want to thank Jeremy Seamus, my guest. And as always, I want to thank my good friend, Nathaniel Beversluis for um, composing our wonderful theme music. So thank you for that. And uh, please join us again on the next episode of the Audition Helper podcast. And uh, in the meantime, if you have any uh, questions, you can direct them to me at ken at theauditionhelper.com. And you can also go to my website at theauditionhelper.com to... uh, to learn more and to see more. Okay, great. Thanks again. Good talking with you. And we'll talk to you again next time. Have a good one. Bye-bye.